here. So I've been following the news with Putin's invasion of Ukraine. And one thing that strikes me is how moralistic the, the news is that there's like there's this evil guy, Vladimir Putin, and he is trying to destroy the world. He's just like Hitler. And I, I'm all for moral judgments, but seeing the world through a right and wrong moral lens is not the only way to see the world. And sometimes it's useful to drop that lens and just look at the world through a power lens. So why would Putin act this way? Like, why does he think it's in his self-interest? And would America intervene in the affairs of nearby states? We've got our own Monroe Doctrine. We don't want uh, foreigners coming into the Americas. We don't want uh, people in Latin America or Central America to do anything that bothers us. And uh, we'll slap them down if they do. So America has its own Monroe Doctrine and uh, Vladimir Putin wants a Monroe Doctrine as well. Now, it's, it's interesting seeing the overwhelmingly moral lens through which this news is being presented. On the other hand, when there's such a universal moral lens on something, then that becomes a reality all of its own. So even if you just want to look at things through a power projection, if pretty much everybody is agreed that Putin is evil and that what he is doing is evil, then that has a profound effect on reality and on power. So I did not expect Putin to actually invade Ukraine, and I did not expect such a unanimity in response. And the unanimity in response, the way that Europe has, has come together, has, has surprised me. And I noticed that all the experts on Ukraine, they, they all admit that they were wrong too. This is uh, Frederick Kagan. All of the states, all of the former Soviet states, including Russia, were recognized as independent states, established diplomatic relations with the world. That's the only standard there is. I got this wrong. Okay, mm -hmm. we, we made a forecast. I and the ISW Russia team made a forecast um, beginning in uh, November and then carrying forward until this very wrong. recently that Putin would not launch this huge invasion. And we, we were wrong. Obviously, he did. And... I, you know, as a matter of analytical integrity, I feel it necessary to say to people explicitly, yes, we were wrong in our forecast. And we've been spent a lot of time trying to understand and think about why we were wrong and what lessons we can learn from that. Here's one of the reasons why we were wrong. Or let me say, this is one of the reasons why we forecast that he would not do this. Because when you look actually at the technical details of the way that... And let's say hello to Colin Liddell. Colin, how are you, sir? Uh, hello, Luke. How are you? I'm fine. Good. So uh, you've you've had some thoughts and you've you've received um, some acclamation in the past from professors for your analysis of uh, of Russia. Were you surprised that uh, Putin actually invaded this time? Um, yeah, I guess. Um, yeah, I think most people were uh, surprised. Maybe maybe even Putin was surprised. <laughs> yeah. And your your perspective is that uh, even before he actually sent troops in, that uh, he, he was heading for for disaster. As soon as he sent troops in, that uh, he was he was destroying his own ability to govern Russia. Is that fair? Uh, yeah, yeah. I was. Um, yeah, I wrote an article called uh, "Putin Has Lost," um, and the basic um, idea in the article was that. Uh, you know, Putin's Putin's been a double act 
And, uh, you know, he's, he, on the one hand, you know, everybody knows he's this uh, badass, um, ruthless killer. And on the other hand, he's this um, almost normal pseudo-democratic politician who can, you know, kiss babies and, uh, you know, do deals with foreign leaders. And now he's kind of, uh, kind of transformed himself into a kind of more like a Kim Jong-un character. And that's something that um, won't, won't play so well with the, the Russian people and will also make it very, very hard for him to do deals with uh, foreign countries, uh, especially in, in Europe. Although it might make it easier to do deals with uh, people like uh, Xi Jinping. Right. And how do you account for the love of Putin on many parts of the distant right? Uh, well, the dissident right um, is essentially um, the sub-media. And uh, the sub-media always have to automatically take the opposite line to the mainstream media, uh, even when the mainstream media is uh, occasionally right about something. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I, I think it's also that uh, Putin seems seems masculine and does not seem to be particularly concerned about uh, human rights or liberal liberal notions and that he seems he seems wait wait a minute wait a minute he's um he's about 170 centimeters at, at the most and that's probably an exaggerated figure how can he possibly be masculine uh I mean, he's out there like he's wrestling, right? He's out there like wrestling and doing judo and things like that. I mean, yeah, yeah. He's shown us his 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 moves. He's got really bad man boobs. Well, anyway, I always thought of Putin as a pretty savvy leader until now. How about you? Yeah, this is the thing. Uh, people thought that, okay, he's a bit of a cunt, but at least he's a kind of calculating, crafty cunt. So he's somebody who's rational, who probably will stick to a deal because uh, it's in his best interests and so on. And now he's coming across as a little bit more unhinged. Uh, and that's not really, you know, the... Um, the image that people had of him. So he's kind of undercut his own image with uh, his recent actions. Um, so, yeah, he's he's unleashed a lot of dark energy, let's say. Surprised that the universal uh, disgust uh, aimed at Putin and how all the European nations seem to be singing from the same hymn book, even though they've got a vital need for Russian energy. Uh, not really, because, um, you know, I think um, we've seen our uh, broader society move in a much more um, kind of hysterical direction. And, you know, we've had this phenomenon where people get very, very emotional about things through social media. And so we're seeing something similar here. This is this is like a, a successor to... Um, uh, you know, things like Black Lives Matter, I guess, and other, you know, online um, kind of uh, hive mind hysterias. And so there is something in that. And I think um, it, to a certain extent, it's it's how things are weaponized now. It's, it's instead of real politic, uh, we have um, 
kind of emo politic so you kind of whip up a kind of uh, storm of emotion about things and this is what's happened in this case and you know i think putin's probably been surprised by that because my guess is that um Putin thought he was being the nice guy. He was he was going in with uh, kid gloves. He was trying to avoid uh, uh, casualties, civilian casualties, and uh, he he was he thought he was um, you know making a play, but he was doing it quite you know carefully. Uh, he wasn't trying to uh, wreck things too much, and he thought that probably that would be enough to. Um, diffuse some of the reaction obviously he he expected some sort of reaction from the west but he thought it would be very disjointed very uh, disunited there would be lots of squabbling and quibbling uh, they wouldn't be able to make their minds up and by the time they they did make their minds up it would be all over that was probably his calculation and instead of that they are leaping straight to you know hitler you know putin is hitler putin is um you know the, the second holocaust you know they've 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 made that emotional leap in a very very short distance of uh, time and probably you know putin might be uh, surprised by that or even devastated by that to some extent Um, yeah, I, I'd say uh, Putin is not like Hitler. Um, I'd say that, uh, you know, both Hitler and Putin were dealing with uh, quite serious geopolitical conundrums. Uh, Hitler was more driven by um, a kind of weird, irrational um, hatred of a certain group of people. Putin, as far as I can tell, he doesn't have a, a particular group of people that he ir irrationally, obsessively hates. So, um, yeah, but I mean, also in the case of Hitler, a lot of what Hitler did to that specific group of people was possibly also driven by events. And so if events pushed Putin down a particular a dark, a dangerous direction. He might end up doing something possibly as uh, heinous and horrific as Hitler. Who knows? Right. I mean, if we get into a nuclear war, that would, he'd be worse than Hitler. Yeah, that would be probably in some ways, if it was a bad enough nuclear war, you could probably say that is maybe slightly and uh, worse than what Hitler did. So when Putin put his his nuclear forces on high, higher alert, do you think this was a serious escalation of the risk of nuclear war or just a tactical move? Um, yeah, I, I, um, when I saw that, I thought he, he looked a little bit unhinged. He was kind of snarling and growling and trying to, like a little guy trying to look scary, I thought, you know. Um, and also, you know, people talk about a midlife crisis, but, you know, I think there's such a thing as a late life crisis. And it's kind of dangerous having a lot of these very, very old people in charge of uh, these very, very powerful nuclear arsenals. I mean, that's obviously the case with America. 
Uh, it's, uh, it was definitely the case with Donald Trump to some extent. And, you know, Putin is, I think he's, uh, he's going to be 70 quite soon. So, uh, you know, these are all people who are quite advanced in age and, you know, they've obviously, um, they've seen, they've, they've, they've lived their lives. They're near in the end. They don't really have that much to lose. So we need to have much younger leaders we have to, we need to have leaders who have uh, families and children and you know people who have a vested interest in a sane and uh, rational future so this this crisis has given a new importance and a new raison d'etre to nato which seemed like an institution that was dying on the vine uh, do you have any thoughts on this uh, yeah yeah i think um yeah when the cold war ended there was a you know, I think there was a an opportunity to um, restructure things and maybe to get rid of NATO and to uh, replace it with uh, some sort of uh, European defence organisation. And if they had done that, if they had created a uh, European defence organisation, then that might have been um, able to expand its membership up to the the borders of Russia without appearing. Um, so threatening, but I think that's, um, I don't, I don't really buy it that, uh, Putin feels militarily threatened by NATO. I don't think NATO is a kind of alliance that can, um, go into countries and, and invade them, especially countries like Russia. So what do you think Putin was trying to achieve? I think Putin's, um, he's much more focused on his domestic political uh, concerns. I think he's much more worried about um, Western liberalism and democracy spreading uh, t uh, through uh, places like Belarus and the Ukraine and then lapping on the shores of, uh, of Russia. That's the probably the most um, scary thing for Putin, you know, because Putin is is he's not a, a democratic leader by any stretch of the imagination. Um, he's had to pretend to be a kind of pseudo democratic leader. He's had to kind of uh, hold elections. He's had to, he's had to have um, different parties in the electoral cycle, but it's very very controlled. You know, there's no real opposition. There's a kind of clown opposition of Zirinovsky and the Communist Party. Um, he controls the media. Um, there's no real alternative. He can present himself as the kind of um, the sane, moderate candidate to most people. And uh, you know, who else are you going to vote for? So you end up voting for Putin if you're a Russian voter. Um, and, uh, you know, so there's no real choice. And if there is a real choice, if somebody rises up like a, a kind of a politician who seems to be um, resonating with the Russian voter, somebody like Navalny or uh, is it Nemetsov, uh, he then has them bumped off or, you know, imprisoned or whatever. You know. So Putin has been playing this part of a pseudo-democratic politician, but um, I'm pretty sure most Russian people as, to some degree know that he's not a uh, democratic politician. And okay, you know, you can criticize Ukraine all you like, and you know, that's all the distant right does these days is criticize 
the Ukraine and gone about how it's a kind of puppet state of affair, Joe Biden, and uh, it's cor totally corrupt. And, you know, to a certain extent, there's, uh, you know, there's no smoke without fire there. But uh, I think uh, the Ukraine has become in, uh, has, has moved towards becoming a, a more um, typical sort of yeah, European style uh, democracy with various parties competing for power and votes and so on. And, and uh, a, a relative degree of free speech and so on. So it's sort of moving in. I mean, the Ukraine wants to be accepted by Europe. They're desperate to be accepted by Europe. And they're quite happy to, you know, do the sort of things that European states do, which is have elections, have individual rights, have, you know, gay rights or whatever it takes. And so they've, they've been moving in that direction. And if, uh, if they do that, um relatively successfully um you know this is a large russian speaking uh, country it has a lot of um connections with russia still that's going to be a conduit of western liberal ideas and aspirations into russia and that's going to cause a uh, upsurge of opposition to to Putin and of course in the past he's faced uh, you know challenges to his power I think there were a lot of demonstrations against him about 10 years ago and you know I think uh, there's a uh, very very not not just a broad dissatisfaction with Putin but it, there's also in some places a very very deep dissatisfaction with Putin and this is this is because he's basically been there so long uh, he's been there too long and uh, all the things that go wrong are um, blamed on him and uh, people do want to have a choice. Um, and definitely he um, he represents a lack of uh, a choice. He represents a lack of freedom. People don't really feel they can be themselves. There is a suspicion that if they step out of line, uh, things could go very, very badly for them. So this will surely be the end of putin i mean we wouldn't be surprised if he's overthrown or assassinated right because surely there are a lot of powerful people in russia who are not happy with the direction the country has taken with this invasion yeah you'd like to maybe think so but uh, it's very hard to predict something like that it's um I mean, most of the um, the oligarchs, they owe their fortune to Putin. You know, I mean, basically, he um, appointed most of these people to these positions that made them extremely rich. Um, and of course, that doesn't mean that they're going to be, uh, you know, endlessly loyal to him. They're, uh, you know, they're probably quite cunning, sneaky people who are um, interested in looking out for number one, but there's, there's a sense that probably nobody wants to be the the first one to move. You know, it's the, the the first one to make the move is going to be the one that carries all the risk, and so it's like uh, I'll just uh, you know stay in the, stay in the background until somebody else does it, and then when if that seems to be going well, I'll back them up. I think they're probably all playing the same plan there. And that, if everybody's thinking like that, if everybody's waiting for somebody else to to uh, stick the knife in, then you end up with a situation where nobody sticks the knife in. Is there anything that's uh, surprising you as you're watching this invasion unfold? Um, 
Uh, yeah, well, let's see. It's just like, um, again, it's just like you can't take everything at face value, first of all. Uh, a lot of the things you see could be misrepresented. It could be um, bits of film from uh, 2014. Um, who knows? There might be even you know various deep fakes going on. So you've got to you've got to take everything with a pinch of salt. Uh, the the Russian army being a bit crap doesn't surprise me. I think the Russian army is. Um, I mean, obviously it's got um, it's got some sort of reputation, but um, there's no reason to think it's very very well organized or very very well run. Uh, I don't think the Russian army has ever been very very efficient or very very well run it's um it's it's, a, it's very much a kind of blunt edged tool uh it can do well in certain situations in other situations it's not so well and so um the fact that we see these russian convoys getting torched and blown up and attacked uh, isn't too surprising um the the great strength of the Russian army is, of course, that uh, they can take losses, which uh, you know most Western armies simply would, um, you know, freak out at. Now it, it definitely seems like uh, this war is not popular in Russia. Is that is that fair? Uh, how how would we know? Because first of all. Um, Apparently, the Russian media haven't even really told uh, people the full truth. I mean, as far as they know, the Russian army is uh, sort of hunkered down in Donetsk and Lugansk, uh, preventing uh, preventing Nazis from genociding these poor Russians, and they haven't really told them about the um, the full scope of the invasion, from what I can tell about the Russian media. Um. Of course, it's filtered through to uh, you know various educated minorities who have uh, good access to the internet. Um, so it's very hard to tell the exact number of people who are who actually first of all who know about the war and secondly who oppose it. But uh, we are seeing signs that um, it's unpopular. There are people coming out against it. And uh, you know this is um, this is the big thing. What's going to happen in uh, in Russia as much as what's going to happen in the, in the Ukraine? Uh, is there going to be uh, a, a mass movement against the war? Are people going to um, react to um, the economic sanctions and the effects of the economic san sanctions? Is that going to uh, spur some sort of opposition to Putin's government? Is that going to create enough uh, instability that uh, there's a, an opening for somebody to, uh, you know, come in and become a, a focus for opposition? You know, these, all these things will probably, all these questions will pro probably be answered in the uh, the next few days or the next uh, couple of weeks. So it should be kind of very, very interesting to see what happens because, I mean, the sanctions have been you know quite heavy quite united uh, for the most part um and so and they seem to be quite serious about um you know waging economic war now is uh, putin's invasion of ukraine the west fault because the west kept expanding nato and did not rule out uh, bringing ukraine into nato 
You still there, uh, Colin? Yeah, yeah, I heard your question. Um, No, I don't think uh, NATO uh, or the West is to blame. And uh, the reason for that is because NATO is not a threat to to Russia and Putin is is probably um, sure of that himself. I don't think he actually literally thinks NATO is a threat. He doesn't literally think that uh, the West is going to... um, invade Russia. Um, so that's that's simply not going to happen. So for Putin to pretend that NATO is a threat to him is disingenuous. Um, what he's really afraid of, as I said earlier, is the, the, um, the idea that, um, you know, uh, countries like uh, Ukraine and Belarus might become, uh, you know, beacons of uh, democracy. So one thing that might come out of this crisis is we'll get an idea of how serious governments are in Europe about meeting their energy needs. So throughout the Western world, there's been all these moves towards renewable energy sources that just are not getting the job done. So do you think that uh, Germany, for example, might restart its nuclear program? Do you, do you think that uh, Europe might get uh, more serious about its its need for energy instead of living in, in a fantasy world where renewables are going to meet a, a need where they're simply not not able to meet that need yet. Any thoughts? Yeah, yeah. I think, um, you know, another thing uh, also uh, is that uh, the Russians uh, have actually been financing the, uh, the green movement in uh, parts of Europe. Um, the Russians obviously wanted to promote uh, German energy dependence on on uh, Russia, and uh, they've actually. I think there. I, I saw at least uh, one story that um, mentioned Russian funding for uh, the environmentalists. Um, so I think the kind of um, yeah, you see, also the the reason people were so interested in green energy is because, again, it's a kind of moral signaling. This is something that the Germans are um, very, very prone to, of course. You know, the Germans love to moral signal. Uh, I can't think why. It's not like they ever did anything, you know, bad in the past that would, you know, need to be uh, atoned for, is it? But uh, anyway, the Germans love to do this. They love to morally signal. And um, environmentalism is one of the best ways, you know, to, to look like a good person. And now they have another way to look like a good person, which is to, you know, be against um, this new giant North Korean state that has uh, suddenly manifested itself on the Eurasian landmass. And so I think um, the uh, the moral needs of European people to signal will be met in uh, different ways from now on. You'll, they'll be able to help out Ukrainian refugees. They'll be able to talk about how nasty and uh, evil uh, Vladimir Putler is. And the appeal of uh, green politics will probably go down, uh, also because it's very, very inconvenient to rely upon uh, you know, uh, Russian gas. And so they'll get back into things like, um, you know, coal-powered um, uh, power stations and um, nuclear power will obviously, you know, get a boost from this. So I think, uh, yeah, this this should um, be a bit of a game changer.
And I noticed the news media is appalled that uh, people feel more empathy for Ukrainians than they say do for Syrians or Iraqis because people in the West feel more in common with Ukrainians, their fellow Christians and their fellow Europeans. Do you, do you have any thoughts on what seems to me just an obvious fact of life that we tend to have more empathy for people who are like us? Well, I think uh, that gives... Um... Putin a, a, a new causes belly, you know, because uh, you know he obviously has to invade the rest of Europe to denazify it. Right. <laughs> yeah, what, what do you think about Putin making the argument that he invaded to denazify Ukraine? Well, this just shows that uh, you know um, we live in an emo political age rather than a real political age, and. Uh, you know, you've got to have your emotional, touchy-feely narrative if you're, um, you know, going to do things in the world. Um, and Putin obviously thinks I've got to have a good, strong narrative that's going to play well with these um, uh, these hysterical, over-emotional Westerners. And so, yeah, I'll go for this anti-genocide denazification narrative, which... Uh, you know, the Russia, Russia Today people have been pushing so hard. Uh, Richard Spencer had a good line on Twitter. He said that uh, sovereign is he who gets the power to name who the Nazis are. Yeah, well, he would say that, wouldn't he? But, uh, I mean, I think a Nazi, you can, anybody can say who a Nazi is. A Nazi is somebody who uh, believes that the, uh, the Jews have uh, an inordinate amount of power, which they invariably use in a... Um, civilizational destroying manner yeah and you made a point that uh, europe will now have to get more serious about meeting its energy needs and can't live in the in the delusion of uh, green this and green that and yeah just to just to stay with the the uh, the uh, previous point i mean that's a typical richard spencerism isn't it i mean it sounds quite impressive when you hear it uh, but when you think about it, it's actually quite stupid because there's uh, Vladimir Putin trying to call um, the Ukraine Nazis and who buys it? Nobody buys it. So he doesn't have the power to call uh, to, to decide who the Nazis are. I mean, you know, this is the thing. It's it's clearly hasn't worked. Probably nobody in Russia thinks the Ukrainians are Nazis. If the Russian army thought that the Ukrainians were Nazis, they would literally be going around machine gunning people, and they're not doing that. So you're making the point that the the Europeans can't uh, be obsessed with green energy now that they've got a very serious energy need. They're going to have to meet it any way they can. And I think that's true for a whole bunch of things that all sorts of people who are into woke politics and woke, woke rhetoric are going to drop it as soon as it becomes inconvenient, as soon as they have more serious concerns. And an analogy would be between World War One and World War Two, there was a growing pacifist movement among the English elite, such as those who went to Oxford and Cambridge, and they passed resolutions that they'd never die for their country. But when the bell sounded, they went to war in, in World War Two. And so I think much of the the woke approach to life is is an indulgence, and when reality hits, uh, people people will simply drop it and deal with reality. And so yeah, but go ahead. But the 
but they'll also they I think they also need to find another alternative uh, wokeness when they do that. And like I said earlier, they'll um, they'll find another way to morally signal, which is, for example, they'll um, they'll they'll be about uh, opposing Putin, or they'll be about helping Ukrainian refugees, or they'll be about raising money for the brave resistance fighters of uh, the Galician forests or whatever, you know. So. Um, they're, they're still going to find a way to um, be um, irritatingly moralistic. It'll just be a, in a different form. Well, I've just been reading a book uh, on this very topic, which actually inspired me to do a stream. It's called The Last Utopia, Human Rights in History. So you and I are old enough to remember there was a time when human rights weren't talked about very much. And then suddenly there was an explosion of talk about human rights in the 1970 human rights outside and apart from and, and threatening the state. So it used to be that rights were considered something that is that that are accorded to citizens of the state. And you didn't hear a lot of talk about rights outside of the, the rubric of the nation state. Then starting in the late 1970s, we get this explosion of talk about human rights that exist outside of, of the nation state. So, that's that's going to be one one new one new utopia so th this book is called the last utopia human rights in history and the, this guy's a leftist jew at, at yale uh professor of law and, and he makes the point that human rights were invented and developed as an obsession when all the other utopias failed <laughs> when when marxism failed when you know other left-wing utopias failed that uh left-wing intellectuals seized upon human rights. Any thought about the development of human rights as, as a preeminent issue, how it just suddenly exploded in the late 1970s? Um, well, yeah. Um, I guess you could see it as an aspect of uh, Western liberalism and Western individualism and also a kind of attempt to create a kind of unipolar system. Uh, because, like, you know, who decides on the human rights? The West decides what human rights are and who should have them. And it's also uh, a corollary of uh, individualism and uh, the sacredness of the individual and the individual's freedom. So it all ties in with Western liberalism. Um, and, of course, um, with the, um, yeah, I guess the idea that um, uh, socialism and especially communism were becoming um, sort of intellectually bankrupt at that point. Yeah, and from, from a realistic perspective, it just doesn't make much sense to talk about human rights outside of the nation state because there aren't any international institutions that, uh, that have great power unless particular nation states want to align with them so would you would you agree with me that the the realistic way to understand human rights are that they are afforded by a particular people or a particular nation state at a particular uh, point in time and they don't really have much uh, universal meaning well they have a kind of um imperialistic uh, utility i mean one of the things that um you see, I mean, going back but long before the 1970s and the 1960s, um, one, one of the things you see is the uh, colonization of Africa. And this was driven by people like, uh, you know, David Livingston and so on. And 
Um, one of the ways that they, it was justified was because these these poor uh, benighted Africans were being exploited by these cruel Arab slave traders. And so, you know, the ex extension of um, European power was of, often predicated on the uh, the idea that uh, we're there to, you know, bear the white man's burden. We're there to improve things for the natives. Um, so it sort of fits into that um, pattern, I feel. And you can see the same thing in the 1970s. You have... Um, the uh, you know the Soviet Union is starting to kind of um, become a bit decrepit, and America is is um, has been militarily defeated in Vietnam, and so they're they are uh, changing their their um, tactics, so to speak, of uh, how to fight the Soviet Union, and of course. Uh, adopting the cause of human rights is one way to uh, undermine Soviet power because this is a society that uh, wasn't really that um, deferential to uh, individual human rights. So I, I remember about a year or two ago, there was an academic who was, I believe, praising your, your writing on, on Russia. Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was... Um, yeah, this guy is. I think his name is George Michael, um, Professor Professor George Michael, not the one that uh, hangs around men's public toilets in uh, London parks, uh, who's sadly passed away a few years ago. So, what what do you remember? What was he praising you for? And and how how long have you had a, a keen interest in things Russian? Uh, well, he, he's saying I'm the um, the the the, uh, the, the best uh, thinker about Russia and the dissident right. So you know, which wouldn't be hard to be honest. You know, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I've been in, I've been interested in Russia for a while. You know, because um, well, you know, my my uncle uh, used to live there many many years ago, um, and you know, just. Uh, you know, growing up in, uh, you know, in Britain when I did, it was kind of hard to ignore Russia. You know, there was, um, uh, th that was the um, the height of the, the Cold War. There was the ever-present -pres threat of uh, nuclear destruction. So it was very, very difficult to, to um, just um, not be interested in Russia at all. You know, I mean, it was, it was, it was, um, very very big presence let's say i'm thinking one of the developments out of this ukraine invasion is that we'll have a a stronger more cohesive and in, in united europe do you do you see prospects for that um yes but you know europe europe can you know i mean the, one of the problems with europe is uh, you have all these, it's, I mean, sometimes it's like herding cats. Everybody's got their own agenda. And right now there seems to be a lot of unity and, uh, you know, everybody seems to be, be pulling together. Um, and it's kind of quite easy for them now to um, to all be on the same page. But, uh, you know, the problem is Europe is inherently divided and they tend to go in different directions. There's lots of little rivalries. They kind of niggle each other. 
different groups that um, well different countries well various countries dislike other countries and they have um you know rivalries with which go way back and you know all this kind of historical baggage gets in the way and so it's it's not too difficult for a large united country like russia if it was well run to play upon those divisions uh, to its to its own advantage and the russians have been doing that quite successfully up until now um and of course you know there's there's this um temporary effect that you get when uh something quite shocking like this happens but after a while this will become normalized uh they'll uh, in some way the there'll be a new status quo we're not quite sure what will happen uh, maybe putin will get bumped off maybe a new leader will come in maybe putin will manage to um stabilize his position and um you know like um reorganize the ukraine in a way that suits himself but uh, whatever happens there'll be there'll be a new steady state at some point and but there there'll, there'll probably still be a large powerful russia and there'll be a very uh, inherently divided europe that can be manipulated in various ways so um at the moment yes to your question but in the long run it's not re- it's not a reliable thing i think russia is a destabilizing influence in europe in the same way that germany used to be and that's the main problem of european geopolitics is how to stop russia playing this destabilizing role um so i think we basically need a, a kind of uh, morgenthau plan for russia <laughs> but i mean isn't isn't russia just self-destructing with its abysmal demographics not really, because they're going to uh, replace the population with uh, their orc army of Chechens and Central Asians and, you know, unite around the uh, kind of tr- tr- uh, radical traditionalism of, a, of an invigorated Islam and uh, Russian Orthodoxy. And uh, what's going on in Japan with regard to skyrocketing energy prices and complications from this Russian invasion of the Ukraine? Um, yeah, a lot of moaning, but, you know, uh, nothing else. And y- you called it uh, months ago. I listened to your shot pod on why uh, you did not expect Boris Johnson to resign. So. One of the advantages of a crisis like uh, this real news of, of Russia invading Ukraine is that the, the silliness, there's just not as much time for it. And so for months, we were hearing about how Boris Johnson was about to be toppled. And uh, you don't hear that anymore. He seems uh, much more secure in his role. And you called it out. You said that it's highly unlikely that he's going to go anytime soon. Any thoughts? Yeah, in a way, there's a kind of... Um... Mm, how can I say a kind of parallel with uh, Putin because Putin sets up his own um, opposition, and so if you want to get rid of Putin, you ha- you you have to have uh, okay, you've got to go and vote for the Communist Party or uh, Vladimir Zirinovsky, who's a complete you know not kick, not job or you know pretends to be, 
And so people just think, now nah, I'll just stick with Putin again. You know, I don't like him, but, you know, he's better than those other two. And that's basically what, um, you know, Boris Johnson has done inside the Conservative Party. He's filled all the other prominent positions with uh, Asian politicians. So if you bump off Boris, then you get uh, Rishi Sunak, an Indian running the country, or Priti Patel, a female Indian running the country, or you get Savid Javid or somebody like, like that. And most uh, people in the Conservative Party are not really there yet. I mean, they're they're pretty woke, but they're not that woke. And uh, what do you think about the direction of America first? Yeah, I was saying earlier that, you know, um, old leaders are not a good thing uh, and we need more young leaders. And so, yeah, we need somebody in their 20s to kind of rise up and offer America the uh, the hope of, for the future, you know. So that's that's definitely what we need. Uh, yeah, we need we need a young leader like uh, somebody you know somebody like that who uh, has a, a very very gifted communicator who can reach out to the masses and uh, you know we've got to get away from this these octogenarians and move to somebody like a zoomer. <laughs> now you mentioned that Nick's uh, latest speech was uh, kind of boring, uh, and you also make the point that. He's an incredibly gifted communicator, but he's not he's not a man of of deep ideas. He he, what has a more facile approach, and uh, incredibly good at communicating it, but th there's not a lot of depth there. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, I found it boring. Yeah, because um, his speech was like content free. There was no content. There were no ideas. There were you know, it was just all rhetoric and. Um, you know, I found that extremely boring, but maybe, you know, most people would find it quite a good speech. They'd find uh, they, they, you know, they project all sorts of things into his empty words. Um, so, yeah, he's obviously a very skilled communicator. He's a very skilled um, politician, I would say, at some stage. You know, he might even do very, very well. Who knows? I mean, it's hard to predict these things, but... I wouldn't be surprised if he uh, if he turned out to be a very very successful uh, politician because he's got all the uh, the worst characteristics that make politicians successful. So Baked Alaska predicts he'll be president one day. Yeah, who knows? That might be that might be uh, you know very sound uh, prediction. You know, America's um, yeah. I, I I I just think America's the kind of country that could actually you know, put Nick Fuentes in the White House. It is that kind of country, you know. I mean, that's what I want to say about America. And, um, yeah, there is something funny about America in that respect. And is there anything about American politics that's caught your attention the past couple of months? Um... Nah, well, I'm trying, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to dredge it up if there is, but, um, yeah, I mean, I do... I do occasionally check in you know like trump hasn't really resurfaced in a meaningful way i think he was at he was at uh, cpac wasn't he, he made some speech mm -hmm. um that didn't really cause us much of a stir as far as i can tell i think i think they're trying to kill his signal as much as possible um yeah there's the um of course there's, there's the afpac thing 
which um, you know had a very interesting and maybe eclectic uh, cast there. A lot of people came. I think Jared Taylor and Peter Brimelow were there. Um, so they kind of see Nick as the as the new Richard Spencer, you know. Um, and what else is going on? It's hard to really put put my finger on it on anything that uh, really stands out. And what about in France? We've got the candidacy of Eric Zemmour. Do you think he's a serious possibility of the future French leader? Well, I think he's, um, yeah, I think he's really controlling the election in a way. He's sort of pushing, uh, as, as they say, pushing the Overton window, and he's made it. Um, he's made he's made a lot of room for some of these um, uh, narratives and tropes that would normally be excluded from the political discourse, and that, in a way, might. Uh, work in you know Marine Le Pen's favor because you know I think um, Zemmour himself will be too um, he'll be too he'll be seen as too radical or too extreme to be accepted um, as a winning candidate and so somebody else might uh, pick up that radical energy that he's unleashed. And uh, I think uh, that might benefit uh, Marine Le Pen, or it might benefit the other French woman. I can't remember her name. Can you? Uh, no, you mean uh, Marine Le Pen's uh, niece? No, no, no. The um, the, the kind of more cons um, centre right woman. Can't oh no, her. I don't remember. Uh, what's her name? Anyway, she's she seems to be. Um, trying to pick up some of that energy as well. She said a few things which are probably a lot more um, right-wing than she would otherwise have said. So I think Zemmour is pushing the whole debate a little bit in the uh, towards the right, and that uh, that's going to have some impact. Um, the, the other problem, though, with the French election is that... Uh, these populist right-wing candidates are going to suffer to some degree uh, due to an association with Vladimir Putin. Right. Yeah, we've got to we've got to dig up this woman's name because I think uh, you know if, if you if you sort of um, put all the pieces together, she's she's got a very strong chance of uh, unseating uh, Richard Spencer's uh, boyfriend, uh, Valerie. Per, per, Valerie Pecres? Pecres, yeah, that sounds yeah. like her. Yeah, Valerie, Valerie Pecres. I think she has a, um, you know, because I think Le Pen, you know, uh, she has been associated to some degree with Putin. Uh, Salvini in Italy, he used to be a big Putin fan. You know, so all these people, all these kind of populist right-wing um politicians who are quite prominent in various European countries, they might um, get a little bit of a uh, negative effect from, uh, you know, what's going on in the Ukraine and some more boring centre-right candidates might uh, pick up the uh, energy there. So I, I noticed a lot of commentary in, in the media about Putin fans, but almost all the Putin fans are people who simply respect Putin's as, as a savvy leader they're not necessarily a, a fan and so it seems it seems that in in the media it's been conjoined that those who have recognized that putin 
is doing a, a pretty good job in a difficult situation until the Ukraine invasion on behalf of his people. That doesn't mean that you don't also recognize that he's a gangster and uh, that you know he kills people he doesn't like. But there seems to be a conflation of respecting Putin as a savvy leader and being a fan of Putin. Do you think there's a meaningful difference there? Because I do. Um, yeah, yeah, there is that. Uh, there's that sense that people um, respect or respected him as a kind of crafty, cunning, clever, calculating politician. Um, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that they like him or uh, you know agree with his, um, his his policies or what he believes in. Right. But that provides a basis. Uh, for people to to sort of uh, you know sit down with him and do a deal and uh, you know, um, but yeah, there is there is that um, yeah. But as I was saying earlier, I think he has kind of undermined that to to, to a large extent. But of course, if uh, if he manages to come out of this um, you know this present gamble uh, on top, then of course that's going to reassert itself. They're going to say that, you know, Putin really is this, uh, 4d chess master and blah, 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 this, that, and the other, you know, so it all depends on how this, um, this, this thing in the, uh, in the Ukraine turns out. And I think it is quite an important, um, you know, event because, um, if Putin is successful and he gets his way, after doing uh, what was the, you know, after launching the the biggest uh, military campaign in Europe since uh, 1945, uh, that's going to make uh, the Western alliance look a, a little bit weak. Um, the West, um, in the aftermath of, of, uh, of this, the West is going to look quite weak and impotent and unwilling to um, kind of stand up and fight for territory. And the Chinese are going to um, get a, a signal from that, that uh, the, the West, including America, is not prepared to stand up and fight. And this, is always, this has always been the problem that the West has. The West is not able to take casualties in the various military um, campaigns that the West has been involved with. And this has always been a problem. I mean, in Vietnam, I think um, America was able to take about 50,000 uh, dead. Is that right? Right, right. Which was pretty pretty impressive by today's standards. Of course, the Vietnamese were able to take about two or three million dead. And uh, the Chinese in the Korean War were, were able to take a lot of casualties. Um, and then later on, you know, like uh, I remember in the in the 1980s, the uh, the U.S. Marines, who are supposed to be the real tough guys of the American Empire, they went into Beirut. Uh, boom, you know, car bomb, 200 dead Marines. The next day, the, the Americans are trying to pull out. And the same thing in uh, Somalia with the you know, Black Hawk down, you know, the, uh, some uh, Americans got killed there. And uh, as soon as they could manage it, uh, they were, the American forces were pulled out. And so America keeps sending out this signal of weakness. And uh, if Putin is able to um, rearrange the Ukraine to, to his liking, 
after this uh, full-scale invasion, the Chinese are going to rightfully conclude that uh, you know Taiwan is theirs for the take, and the Americans are not going to uh, step up and fight for it. And uh, what do you think Putin wants beyond the Ukraine? Let's say he crushes Ukraine, takes Ukraine. Will he be satisfied, or do you think he has further ambitions, such as the Baltic states? Yeah, I think he wants to. Um, well, he has. To, he does have specific demands, and um, you know, he does. He uh, he wants NATO forces uh, to stay behind the line they that, that they held when uh, the Soviet Union was uh, all powerful. So, um, apparently, uh, Putin's vision is that uh, okay, countries like Poland and. Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia can stay in NATO, but uh, no NATO forces from other NATO countries should be deployed in those countries. That's kind of what he's aiming at, I think. So all the Germans have to stay in Germany, all the British have to stay in Britain and so on. And so right now there's British troops deployed in Estonia, which is, you know, very, very close to St. Petersburg, uh, Putin's hometown. And uh, so he doesn't want to see any of that. And also, of course, he doesn't want countries like Finland and Sweden to uh, to join. And right now they're kind of seriously thinking about joining NATO after what happened to uh, the Ukraine. And have you been reading any good books lately? Yeah, yeah, probably, yeah. Um, let me just um, have a look around. What have I been reading? Um, I can't find it. Where is it? Oh, there it is. Yeah, okay. I was reading uh, Gunter K. Koshkorek's Blood Red Snow. And what's that about? Well, this is actually quite appropriate to what's happening because uh, this is about uh, this is the memoirs of a, a German soldier on the Eastern Front, and basically um, this guy was was fighting in the Ukraine. Um, he was he was he was fighting against the the Red Army, and it's the same terrain that is being fought over today. So you know, I was actually reading that before this uh, flared up. And so it's uh, a lot of the um, the names in the news uh, are quite familiar from this book as well. Okay, great. Any any final words, Colin? Uh, no, no, and uh, you know we have no idea what's going to happen. Uh, we, it's very very unsafe to make predictions, and it's going to be very uh, exciting to uh, to see which uh, way you know things go. Okay, Colin, great to talk to you. Right, Luke, see okay. you. Bye-bye. See you, mate. Okay, so I, I was inspired to do this stream because I've been reading a terrific book. And the book is called The Last Utopia, Human Rights in History. And so the author is a left-wing Jewish professor at Yale who has degrees from Berkeley and other left-wing institutions. And he's he's making the point that uh, we never really talked about human rights much prior to the late 1970s. So he says, historians of human rights approach their subject the way church historians once approached theirs. They regard the basic cause, much as the church historian treated the Christian religion, as a saving truth 
discovered rather than made in history. If a historical phenomenon can be made to seem like an anticipation of human rights, it is interpreted as leading to them in much the way church history famously treated Judaism for so long as a proto-Christian movement simply confused about its true destiny. Meanwhile, the heroes who are viewed as advancing human rights in the world, much like the church historians, apostles, and saints, are generally treated with uncritical wonderment. Hagiography, for the sake of moral imitation of those who chase the flame, becomes the main genre, and the organizations that finally appear to institutionalize human rights are treated like the early church, a fledgling but hopefully universal community of believers struggling for good in a veil of tears. If the cause fails, it is because of evil. If it succeeds, it is not by accident, but because the cause is just. And I will add, inevitable, that all of human history has been building towards human rights. These approaches provide the myth the new movement wants. They match a public and politically consequential consensus about the sources of human rights. Human rights commonly appear in journalistic commentary and in political speeches as a cause both age-old and obvious. At the latest, both historians and pundits focus on the 1940s as a crucial era of breakthrough and triumph. High-profile observers such as Michael Ignatieff, for example, see human rights as an old ideal that finally came into its own as a response to the Holocaust, which might be the most universally repeated myth about their origins. In the 1990s, an era of ethnic cleansing in southeastern Europe and beyond, during which human rights took on a millennial appeal in the public discourse of the West, it became common to assume that ever since their birth in a moment of post-Holocaust wisdom, human rights embedded themselves, embedded themselves slowly but steadily in humane consciousness in what amounted to a revolution of moral concern. In a euphoric mood, many people believe that secure moral guidance born out of shock about the Holocaust and nearly incontestable in its premises was on the verge of displacing interest and power as the foundation of international society. All this fails to register that, without the transformative impact of events in the 1970s, human rights would not have become today's utopia, and there would be no movement around human rights. So, the best explanation for the origins of this human rights social movement and common discourse around human rights remains the collapse of other prior utopias, both state-based and internationalist. These were belief systems that promised a free way of life, but led into a bloody morass, such as communism and socialism. Well, they offered emancipation from empire and capital, anti-colonialism, but suddenly came to seem like dark tragedies rather than bright hopes. So in this atmosphere, an internationalism revolving around individual rights surged, and it did so because it was defined as a pure alternative in an age of ideological betrayal and political collapse. It was then that the phrase human rights ended common parlance in the English language. And I remember this, human rights ended common parlance under Jimmy Carter in the late 1970s. I remember when I was going to school, so I started school late. My my parents believed it was a good idea to start school late, so I think I was age eight when I entered second grade. And as a kid, I noticed every year there'd be some new fad that was, was shaping my education. So the best, to, so to give up on church history or to give up on this utopian view of human rights is not to celebrate a black mass instead, right? And many people think, oh, human rights, current obsession with human rights, that's just a, a logical accompaniment of the growth of you know, universalist ideals as espoused by Christianity or the Enlightenment. Well, there's a big difference between earlier rights. They were all based on belonging to a political community and eventually human rights. So my approach to understanding life has not been the classical liberal one that we were born into the world with certain inalienable rights. 
to me that's naive. I take a nationalist approach that we are born into a tribe and whatever rights we may have depend on time and place and what the tribe or what the people the nation can afford in that time or place. So there is a big difference between earlier rights, which were based on belonging to a political community, and this eventual universalist notion of human rights that would go against often what the state wanted to do. So the state was considered necessary to create a politics of rights really until the 1970s. So if the state is necessary to create human rights, could human rights have any other real source than in its own authority and any other basis than its local meaning? And no, I, I don't think human rights has any meaning aside from what a nation state can afford to give. And uh, welcome to Elliot Blatt. <laughs> blessings, blessings, bro. Blessings. Uh, you know, I wanted to call in earlier, but Colin was on, and I didn't want to. You know, I didn't want to drop the IQ level so precipitously. <laughs> I didn't want to de- delete the IQ. <laughs> This is a safe place for you, bro. Thanks, bro. Yeah, I, I, my takes are more basic. I'm just still trying to learn all these, uh, this new geography, you know? You're following all this it's, new it's geography. Kiev. It's Kiev, not Kiev. It's Kiev. Kiev, yeah. Kiev. Kiev, yeah. And then you got the Donbass. Yeah, the Donbass. Who can forget the Donbass? <laughs> it's like everyone just starts talking about the Donbass. Like, we all know what the Donbass is and why... Why do you have to use the, you know, it's, I don't know. It's weird. And like, I think Ukraine technically means the outback or something or the, the, the wildlands or something like that. But so, um, you know, then there's, you know, you, you got Kiev, you got the Donbass, you've got the Dnieper River, the D-N-E-I-P-E-R River. Oh, it's great like place. Great place. Newport, Newport, something like Nipur. that. You know, just trying to just trying to do the basics, Luke, before I start making these grand pronouncements and projections about. Okay, now that you've got the now that you've got the basics down, what are your your grand projections? I think uh, this is just me gleaning whatever I can on online discussions. I think basically there'll be some sort of. I don't think I think Russia is going to effectively own Ukraine. Whether they formally, you know, annex it or not, and there'll be this deal that there's no NATO, no NATO presence in Ukraine, and this thing could all sort of come to a rel- relatively peaceful end. I, I don't see this in apocalyptic terms. I mean, I, I feel like um, I feel like I'm not taking it seriously enough. I just don't see the I don't see the necessary chain of events that leads to the apocalypse, like people seem to be saying yeah i mean if, if millions of people dying of, of, of covid wasn't particularly serious then you know how could an invasion of ukraine be serious if we only got a few <laughs> thousand dead that's that's right no but i i think i think just geopolitically i think putin's i think putin's case is strong you know he's been lied to double crossed by nato uh he's looked at the way the U.S. has behaved in Iraq, for instance, and, you know, as, you know, legitimate concerns. This doesn't mean I necessarily worship Putin or anything else like that. But, you know, you can look at it just geopolitically and say, you know, is Russia acting rationally? And you can come to that conclusion. But this is just me thinking. But another thing is, so everyone's talking about, you know, this invasion is brash and reckless and all these types of things. 
But if you play chess, uh, you learn that sometimes the only defensive move that you have is to go on offense. So uh, it's not, and I'm sure there are plenty, Putin is advised by many uh, able chess players in, in Moscow. And so, you know, this is just my intuition. Who knows? So do you think this invasion will lead to more widespread respecting the cock and taming the C-U-N-T? <laughs> well, yeah, funny you should say that, Luke, because I, you know, I talked to somebody about um, cottaging, the whole cottaging culture in Ukraine. And it's thriving. But it's it's surreptitious. Though. I mean, they do respect the cock in Ukraine. <laughs> well, in all in all forms, in all forms. For instance, but, there's a whole coded language about cottaging in Ukraine, do, do, and I've learned it. Do you want to share? It? <laughs> wow, you you'll do great there, man. Do, do you want me to share it with you? Please. Okay. So let's say, uh, for instance, you're. As Claire Claw might say, you fancy a bit of cottaging. So you'd go into a bar, and then you'd you'd find a you'd find a gentleman and say, "Excuse me, <laughs> do you enjoy hunting in the Donbass?" <laughs> and then, if he's if he's into it, he'll reply, "Yes, let me clean my Kalashnikov." <laughs> Oh, oh yeah! I see the obvious. Oh yeah! Oh, say that more. And then, but if he's not into it, they'll say, "No, I prefer fishing in the Nyipor." So, very important little cultural tricks I've been learning about Ukraine. Wow, mine's a terrible thing to waste. I'm glad to see you haven't been wasting yours, bro. <laughs> uh, I don't know, Luke. That was my joke of the day, bro. What can I say? Uh, very good, very good. So you're, you're not concerned that this uh, this invasion of Ukraine might, might spill into a wider war, possibly nuclear exchange? Oh, but uh, who's going to go? Okay, how would this possibly unfold? I can't even believe people are talking about this. But who cares about Ukraine? If Ukraine didn't want to put, be invaded, they they would have, you know, they would have had a military. <laughs> Same with Europe. If Europe doesn't want Russia to expand. They'd have Europe. They would have militaries instead of just relying on the United States. This is the idea that that Americans suddenly need to get get the borders of Europe just right. Seems ridiculous to me. Now, even a cynical guy like you and, and like me, I, I've been moved by the Ukrainians. I, I can't, I can't pretend to to look at social media and not be moved by what they're going through and the savvy way and cocky way that they are fighting back. Have you not felt tinges of empathy with the Ukrainians? I mean, it, I think not, tonight I, I, we're all Ukrainians, bro. I have nothing against the Russians nor the nor the Ukrainians. I I, I just don't understand why this needs to. We need, we need to blow up the whole world over them. I think there's a... a uh, you know, I've been listening to all kinds of analysis. And some say that... Uh, one interesting bit of the analysis was that... Uh, they 
Putin recognized that uh, the economy was weak and the inflation, you know, the United States economy was weak because of all of the money printing. And then if they did this, they could, uh, you know, they could create runaway inflation and they could use they, it would be basically an economic weapon uh, to take down the United States, uh, which was, a, you know, a bit conspiratorial, but interesting nonetheless. Uh, I, I don't know. Um, I, I don't like this whole play. Like, you know, I, I, if, if you don't, you don't want to, you, you don't go to war. You don't start World War III. You start World War III because you love Ukrainians so much. You know, it's just a ridiculous style of logic. Right. But, uh, I mean, it seems pretty amazing to, to watch the whole world rally behind the underdog Ukraine in, in this fight. Yeah, but they're being, you know, whipped up by the media, of course. Right. I mean, if, if, if the media had said the Ukrainians were terrible, nobody would care, right? The media calls the tune. It's whether or not the, that, that, that tune resonates with people enough. But I don't think people are coming to this conclusion, you know, they're having deep thoughts about Ukraine. No, they turn on the TV and then you have one hysterical, you know, news anchor after another telling them about how terrible things are in Ukraine. And people start giving a shit about Ukraine. And what do you notice in real life? Do you notice people caring about Ukraine in, in real life? I did drive, I did drive past a, uh, a protest yesterday downtown, like a Ukrainian advocacy protests so and now i'm really you know i got the ukrainian flag colors down you know yeah. you got the you got the light blue and the yellow two stripes simple elegant i got it so I got, i've got that one committed to memory have so you I'm changed your social media profiles to to the ukrainian flag no not yet not yet <laughs> not yet still it's like on like 100 on my list right now but it, it'll happen have you tried telling women this could be our last night on Earth? We're, we're verging on nuclear war. Let's try to make it meaningful. Not yet. Not yet. It's a good line. The other, the other thing is, uh, you know, I, my, uh, my landlord's Ukrainian. I have Ukrainian neighbors. You know, my, na my neighborhood is, you know, well, it used to be highly Russian-Ukrainian, but now it's more Chinese. Chinese and Russian Ukrainian. So there's a certain uh, Ukrainian imprint in my neighborhood. So if people were reacting, this is the place I'd be right in the place where they'd be reacting. And the response seems to be pretty muted. So you mentioned that the Ukraine, that Ukraine is number 100 on your list of priorities. Anything that you can share about the prior 99 priorities? Um, yeah, so I've got this box of paperwork that I've just been putting off. These long overdue tasks and things, including taxes. Yeah, you haven't done your so taxes. I, do I got my refund like a week ago, bro. The state and oh, I, I wait to the absolute last minute. The Why, bro? Last Why? <laughs> I hate it. I just the thought of it. thought of the whole process makes me ill. It's terrible. I keep thinking I'm going to do what you do and just get it out of the way, you know? But then, then, uh, well, then uh, there's always next. There's always tomorrow, and then 
but before you know it, it's the um, the deadline. Hey, is the deadline the, uh, back to April 15th this year? Or I, it- I assume so. I mean, I've used the same accountant for 25 years, so I sit down, spend an hour yeah. or two, and then email right. the stuff over, and uh, they do a marvelous job. $450. Are they aggressive? I don't know. I mean, they just do it and I get money. It's a good deal. <laughs> yeah, I know, but... Uh, uh, I've know. never been audited. Or, well, remember, uh, I need to... Remember, uh, what was that, the Breaking Bad? Mm-hmm. It says, you need a criminal attorney. Oh, right. I need Better a criminal attorney. <laughs> Yeah, right. So, I, I, I'm a law-abiding citizen, bro. I, I I don't need anything edgy. I don't need anything dangerous. I don't need anything criminal. I, I'm a, I'm all about law and order, not just for America, but also for me. Uh, your pillar is just absolute uh, <sighs> a paragon of virtue, Luke. Hey, one thing interesting has come out of this. Is uh, Coach Red Pill? Are you firing any of this? Uh, no, but I, I, you know he Coach... was on. Yeah, he was on JF's show from the U- from Ukraine, right? Yeah, but <laughs> Coach Red Pill was part of the R, uh, the internet blood sports scene, right? He was like, he was like, a, he's a, basically a colleague of Andy Worski and yeah, Ethan Ralph. Yeah. So like, there would be you know there'd be these videos, these live streams, and there's coach red pill and andy worski fighting about who has to sleep on the couch in one of their sort of bacchanalian adventures in memphis tennessee and then fast forward a couple years later he's like being interviewed on russian television well he's he's a he's a public intellectual bro like andy worski hey, wow. How's my audio? Is, is it come through the car speaker? Yeah, not not as good, but it's okay. I can still hear you. Okay, I'm driving home. I'll be home in like one minute. But I mean, uh, I think that's all I got, Luke. Okay, thanks, bro. Good to talk to you. Blessings. <laughs> all right, peace. All right, bye. Okay, so let's get back to this fascinating book that I've been reading. The Last Utopia Human Rights in History. It's by a professor at Yale, Samuel Moyne. And you're probably thinking, who is this guy? Uh, in uh, modern societies. Uh, and so for professional historians, what's new about the history of international law is that historians are doing it at all. Uh, now, in my own field, the history of human rights, actually history as a, as a discipline is one of the last to enter the field of human rights. Political science and law were, of course, pioneering. But it's only in the late 1990s when human rights were close to becoming a kind of millennial creed in the American public sphere that historians began to think about what the history of human rights was, where they came from. Uh, If you look at the main journal, the sort of equivalent of the Harvard or Yale Yale Law Journals in uh, the historical field, Uh, There's uh, uh, the first article that mentions human rights in the title comes from 1998. And the first mention of the Universal Declaration of 1948 uh, in its pages is also in 1998, telling us that something has happened in the 90s. Now, with the uh, rise of the uh, recent administration 
Americans care about human rights uh, in a new way, not uh, as an export, but as something that might matter uh, to restrain uh, more local politicians. But okay, this speech was delivered October 28, 2009. In any case, in the 90s and 2000s in the United States, uh, human rights matter in a new way. Uh, now, uh, you'll have, I think, in this series, a, a, a kind of uh, a star-studded cast of people who uh, look at the origins of international law. Uh, I'm going to be looking more uh, recently and on the American scene, actually. I'm going to really be talking in a, in a much broader sense about the history of human rights. And if there's time, I'll turn in a last bit to think about how we think about the place of international law in particular in the broader uh, history of human rights. I think it matters to uh, law schools that Andres organized this uh, series. After all, uh, law schools remain basically trade schools, and this affects the kinds of intellectual life they cultivate, I think, very deep ways. Uh, uh, until recently, law schools didn't provide much of a home for professional historical scholarship. Now they make room for American historians studying U.S. history. But by and large, uh, the history of old Europe, as uh, it used to be called recently, uh, uh, which is, after all, where international law got its start, uh, still remains uh, the province of other parts of the university. But as I say, uh, I'm going to be talking about recent history and about uh, American history mostly. So uh, I'm a bit more on your home turf. Even so, I hope to show you that the recent past could be a pretty foreign country. So let me start with my first big... So when he says that even the, the recent past can be a pretty foreign country, he's making the point that we didn't really talk much about human rights until the late 1970s, and you didn't get a, a big academic paper, anyway, a legal paper on the topic until, what, 1994 or so? So... Many of the, the fads that uh, dominate our discourse today, they were absent previously. They are a human construction. They're not some inevitable unfolding of human history. And so Half Galician makes the point in the chat, why do I need to hear this bloke talk about human rights? Well, why not just talk about Carl Schmitt? Well, I was reading a book on Carl Schmitt, and this guy was referenced in a footnote. And uh, off I went. So just a few more points from Samuel Moyne. What happened for human rights? What happened to make it seem like the only viable kind of universalism there is now? Well, what happened is all the other utopian universalisms like communism and anti-colonialism turned out not to work very well. And uh, Goethe exclaimed in 1797, who will dare to avow that his heart was not lifted up when the new sun first rose in its splendor when we heard of the rights of man, of inspiring liberty and of universal equality? This is his reaction to the French Revolution. But unlike later human rights, the rights of man were deeply bound up with the construction of state and nation. So it is now the order of the day to transcend that state forum for rights, but until recently the state was their essential crucible. So I was uh, reading over the past few days terrific 2019 book, The Oxford Handbook of Carl Schmitt. And Here's just an excerpt from one essay talking about Carl Schmitt and uh, the role of the nation state. So authority, right? The nation state depends upon authority and authority is seldom durable, no matter the form of political organization achieved, whether it's democracy 
aristocracy, monarchy, communism, authority does not last. So anarchy always lurks just below the surface. And once authority is questioned or denied, civil war becomes a real possibility, just like uh, sexual anarchy always lurks just below the surface. I've been reading the book Aftermath about uh, Germany in the 10 years after World War II, and one of the things that happened with the anarchy of the complete destruction in World War II, there was an explosion of sexual experimentation. And so anarchy always lurks just below the surface. And when you have reforming movements in Judaism, then the whole construct of Jewish law is loosed and anarchy is unleashed. So once authority is questioned or denied, so once religious authority was questioned or denied, we emerged into an overwhelmingly secular world. So even though people in the United States still go to church in supposedly large numbers, uh, church has become so secularized. It's become you know, like a, a rock concert. So you, you might think that uh, church is a really big deal. Well, the form is still there, but it has become secularized. Staff, and it may take up most of my time or all of it, which is to think more broadly about how human rights as an idea came to the world. What are some models for thinking about where it came from? What I want to ask is that. Okay, let's have a look at things like megachurch. I was raised as a Catholic, but I wouldn't really describe myself as religious today. I had never heard of things like megachurches or televangelism or the prosperity gospel. That was until I stumbled across an infamous interview. How are you, sir? We'd just like to ask you about why you don't want to fly commercial. You've got this journalist that is confronting this guy called Kenneth Copeland. You said that you don't like to fly commercial because you don't want to get into a tube with a bunch of demons. Do you really believe that human beings are demons? No, I do not. And don't you ever say I did. Get in a long tube with a bunch of demons. We wrestle not with flesh and blood, but principalities and power. Copeland is being confronted about his purchase of a Gulfstream jet. And it turns out that that jet is just one of a fleet of jets that he owns, along with a boathouse, a mansion, and his very own airport. This is a, a preacher that is supposedly worth hundreds of millions of dollars with an enormous following. And you're telling me that he is just one of many. <sighs> this entire thing is a rabbit hole. Pastor, what is now the largest church in America, a weekly sermon watched by more than 10 million viewers on television. The apostles were businessmen. They were rich men, had plenty of money. I'm going to show you that Jesus was a wealthy man, had plenty of money. One of my chandeliers cost more than most people's house. I got 22 chandeliers in the house. They're extremely greedy. They don't need mansions. They don't need jets. God told me to have that thing. Any religious leader who speaks the word of God who has more than one suit while someone has no clothes is a cop-out. Yeah, you know what, Larry? I just don't see it that way. For $54 million, I want you to imagine how many people could be fed. Well, ha, ha, ha. How many homeless could have places to sleep? Ha! <laughs> the fresh prep of all. Fresh, 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 fresh! You're hearing me. <laughs> Televangelism is still thriving in this country. If you are willing to pay the price, you could talk directly to God.
When I remember my own personal experiences inside of a church, what comes to mind was definitely not this. Times is like a okay. So the form is religion, but the the content is secularized. Concert, and when the preachers come to preach, it's like a celebrity has just taken to the stage. Everyone is worshiping together. They're smiling. They're joined in their faith and devotion. What we're witnessing is something called a mega church. By definition, a mega church is just a church that has a larger than average congregation, normally of 2,000 members or above. But when we think of spirituality or, or forms of it, there's normally a distinction between spiritual duty and materialistic desires. Now, I'm not a theologian and I'm not going to pretend to be one, but even I remember verses from the Bible when it came to wealth and, and building riches that it wasn't viewed favorably upon. But if my memory is correct, then what was I witnessing in this interview with Copeland and moreover some of these preachers? So you've got this preacher, Kenneth Copeland, who founded the Kenneth Copeland Ministries along with his wife, Gloria. They own a $7 million home, a fleet of jets, and their Eagle Mountain International Church has a membership in the thousands, not to mention their television and online broadcasting. Then there's Jesse Duplantis, who sat with Copeland as they both justified their purchases of private jets. And then the second one I, I purchased was in January 2004. Benny Hinn, who claims to be able to perform miracles, who fills up stadiums and broadcasts it on networks worldwide. I release it. Joel Osteen, a very popular figure, especially in Houston, Texas, where his church resides, who's authored books that have been on New York Times bestsellers, as well as hosting church services with celebrities like Kanye West. Creflo Dollar, who has created fundraisers for his private jets, whose ministry owns two Rolls Royces and expensive real estate to boot. God is the gateway to the world of wealth. There's this Instagram page, which is called Preachers and Sneakers, and it's literally just preachers next to the cost of the clothing that they are wearing something something just isn't right i keep asking myself how right how is it possible okay let's go back to the oxford handbook of carl schmidt so authority seldom durable religious authority secular authority anarchy always lurks just below the surface once authority is questioned or denied civil war becomes a real possibility once people started making public jokes about adultery that meant that adultery was off the hook and unleashed so there's always been a feared disintegration of the association and the self-alienation of the components of the state. So there have always been people who have wanted the state to be an integrated community set on a common course and pursuing a common purpose. So what is the purpose of the nation state? Is it simply to protect your private pleasures, to enable you to pursue money and sex and to do your hobbies, to practice your religion, to do the things that you want to do, to protect your rights to free speech or freedom of association? Well, we're living in the age post-COVID. We saw how many of our rights were just taken away like that. So if that's the purpose of the nation state, then the nation state hasn't been doing too well the past couple of years. So it seems to me the primary purpose of the nation state is to protect its people. And so sometimes that means the removal of rights. So Carl Schmidt was a, was the professor of order. His concern was order. Very much like my own. My, my primary concern for society is order, law and order. So for Schmidt, authority, strength, power is the source, not the result of law. Law cannot protect itself or the association it governs. So Carl Schmidt came of age during World War I, and that war and then the 
chaos of Weimar Germany certainly heightened his fears about disorder. So after World War I, Germany had restricted sovereignty. It was relieved of chunks of its territory. It was deprived of an effective military. It was occupied. It was denied membership in the promised land of the League of Nations until 1926. It was stripped of its merchant fleet. It was under foreign economic supervision. It had to pay reparations. It was fighting border wars in the east as well as in insurrectionary battles, not just below the surface, but on the streets of its major cities. So Germany in the 1920s was faced with basic questions of political order and survival. So to assume that the self-authenticating property of the legal system or the political system, especially in its liberal form, with its postulated autonomy of the individual, equipped with all these pre-political rights and consumer desires, right? The whole purpose of the state is to protect the rights of the citizen. That's, that's the ethic that the United States was founded under, right? Schmidt felt all this was a luxury that uh, Germany could ill afford, and so a more substantial source of authority, according to Carl Schmidt, was needed. So during the 1920s and early 30s, he increasingly found that source of authority to be the people, a collected political body with felt obligations to each other, to the nation. So the authority of the political system was located not in the law, but in the people, the popular constituent power that animated the law. Now, in the United States, in the 1920s, the situation was quite different. So the United States in the 1880s became the world's richest nation, and by World War I, the United States had become the globe's preeminent power. But internally, the country had been traumatized by the World War I experience. So government-organized surveillance, violence, and vigilantism during Woodrow Wilson's disastrous second term sparked an American liberal rights revolution. So these days, you hear many Americans on the right musing about uh, we need more obligations, less talk about rights, more talk about obligations. And uh, if we focus on obligations, we will renew among Americans a sense of commitment toward our fellow citizens. So during World War I, they put rights and not obligations at the center of our political life. Individualism has corroded our common culture and our civic associations. We even bowl alone, and this complaint resonates. Like, how did we become so rights-obsessed and come to ignore the importance of obligations. So from this perspective, the sense of obligations, of voluntarism, and obligation in the political culture of early 20th century America must astound. But the humiliation, the persecution, the imprisonment, and the murder of German Americans and other immigrants stepped up terror waged against African Americans, the flare-up of anti-Semitism, the violation of religious conscience, the violent destruction of the radical labor movement and the Socialist Party tell a different story. So those who seek something beyond the rights revolution must understand the political culture that existed before rights talk, when obligations still held sway. So in a divided, unequal society, civil society could be an arena for negotiating political obligation, could also be a weapon wielded against the weak. So this whole coupling of civil society and the state can be brutal even in liberal democracy. But rights themselves are, of course, no magic shield. So rights turn citizens into consumers and politics into slogans. Rights frequently not only fail to protect individuals and groups, they also become weapons wielded against the weak. And most alarmingly, according to Carl Schmidt, is a sense that a reliance on rights, civil, human, or other, threatens to enfeeble popular political will and replace political decisions with legal bureaucratic procedures. And so in the world we now live in, human rights increasingly trump self-determination. And after that sentence... 
is a parenthesis and a reference to this book by Samuel Moyne on human rights. So reading Carl Schmitt becomes an exercise in contemplating contradictions, the public versus the private, duties versus rights, collective equality versus individual liberty. So it was an Italian political theorist in the 1980s, Norberto Bobbio, who insisted that modern democracy is necessarily formal and procedural and bureaucratic. Right? The democratic system nowadays signifies first and foremost a set of procedural rules, among which majority rule is the main. So there is historically a great antagonism between the ideal of democracy based on notions of equality and liberalism as a political movement that emerged at the beginning of the 19th century in opposition to both monarchical principle and popular sovereignty. So liberalism is about protecting individual rights, individual liberty and formal equality before the law and constitutional government were advanced in the 19th century to combat the absolutist tyrant as well as the tyranny of the mob. So this battle between liberalism and democracy is the battle between the hegemony of liberty over equality and equality over liberty. So liberty and equality are antithetical values. Neither can be fully realized except at the expense of the other. So I'm an Orthodox Jew. I value community, and with community comes a loss of freedom. So I love freedom. I also love community. So I voluntarily give up some freedom for some community, and I voluntarily give up some sense of community for more freedom. So a liberal laissez-faire society is inevitably inegalitarian, and an egalitarian society is inevitably illiberal. So to fuse liberalism with equality, you have to tweak definitions. You have to weaken the meaning of equality. So nowadays, democracy must restrict its desire for equality because we need to ensure rights. So this hybrid creature that we call liberal democracy right, means that one has a right to equality, but it does not mean one necessarily has the material means to enjoy as concrete exercise. So liberalism habitually brushes this inconvenient detail aside, thereby wins its battle with democracy. But whereas liberal ideals need no alteration, older definitions of democracy are constantly discredited and disappear. So modern liberal democracy means it's bureaucratic, it's juridical, it's institutional, it's procedural, it emphasizes rules. So it's a formal government of rules rather than government by the people. So liberal democracy supplants an ethical vision that promotes substantial equality, not only of opportunity, but also of achievement, and therefore exerts itself to be a government for the people. So today, non-democratic liberal states would be inconceivable. So now we have the state that seems to be its primary purpose is to ensure our private pleasures. Our private pleasures, our private rights have replaced political participation for modernity no longer permits direct public citizenship. So based on property rights and grown to a size that is unmanageable by politics, the modern state has hit upon the idea of representational government, which removes from the citizen the burden necessity of political knowledge and intimate participation. So popular sovereignty has become illusory. The individual can almost never perceive the influence he exercises, never does his will impress itself upon the whole, nothing confirms in his eyes his own cooperation. So the pleasure afforded the ancients by their exercise of political rights is no longer attainable. Our pleasure now is taken privately. So the aim of the ancients was the sharing of social power among citizens of the same fatherland, referring to the ancient Greeks. The aim of the moderns is the enjoyment of security and private pleasures, 
they call liberty the guarantee accorded by institutions to these pleasures. So this type of view is singing us a lullaby. Sole aim of the modern nation is repose, is rest, comfort. There's a source of comfort industry. The citizen becomes the bourgeois. The political actor becomes the passive consumer. Hush, little baby, don't you cry. The interests of the political have been subserved to those of the economy. So the whole effects of commerce not only emancipates individuals, but it places authority itself in a position of dependence upon the economy. Power threatens, but wealth rewards. So for Carl Schmidt, this perspective produces a consumptive portrait of a pale humanity engaged only in passive pleasures, eschewing public responsibility. So Schmidt eviscerated this liberal ethos of wealth and property to say is does the consistent liberal that all vice lies on the side of the state and all virtue with civil society is to elide, elide the necessary efficacy of the public, of the political. So Schmidt saw the 18th, 19th century views of freedom, progress, and reason in alliance with the economy, with industry, and technology. And uh, these things are prized and pitted against the evils of feudalism, reaction, force, state, war, and politics. So what emerges from this confrontation is the triumph of parliamentarianism, liberalism, over dictatorship, either of the monarch or of the people. So this is a victory of civil society, is a repository of all that is good over the state and the sinister machinations of politics. So the political is a stage upon which actors display the making of decisions and their consequences. The audience is comprised of spectators. Economic activity occurs in the lobby where the buying and selling goes on. If actual political decisions are made in the lobby rather than by the actors portrayed on the stage, then the audience is deceived as the actors hide the fact that they are mere marionettes manipulated from afar. So according to Carl Schmidt, democracy requires first homogeneity and second elimination or eradication of heterogeneity. So democracy demonstrates its political power by knowing how to refuse or keep at bay something foreign and unequal that threatens its homogeneity. Homogeneity meaning sameness. So from a Schmidtian point of view, democracy depends upon us having a great deal in common with our fellow citizens, as opposed to the modern diversity movement, which says the least, the less we have in common with our fellow citizens, the better. So the contemporary reader will be chilled by this notion of homogeneity and the brutality of the language of exclusion contained in it. So in Carl Schmitt's perspective, for people to exist, it must pick the national distinction around which to rally. If for no other reason than that, the national distinction is the territorial distinction and thus the physically defensible distinction. So in a world of nation states, the nation state is supreme. To raise another distinction above all others, such as religion or class, would be to incite civil war which would make the collective vulnerable to forces coming from the outside. So this is what defines the democratic community in Carl Schmitt's view. So basic rights, which are now called human rights, are generally thought of as pre-political in the liberal perspective. And fear of state power and the desire structurally to limit the state motivates all liberal constitutions. So the liberal state then has no other function than preserving the rights of the egoistic individual pursuing his private pleasures. And both Karl Schmidt and Karl Marx had a big problem with that. Right, let's get a little bit more about the origins of human rights. This is Professor Samuel Moyne. 
speaking about his 2010 book, The Last Utopia of Human Rights in History. Even if we believe fervently in human rights, we detach from them for a moment uh, and, and step back and ask why we do. Now, we might uh, address that question from lots of perspectives. There's a psychological perspective because it's something that evokes a kind of emotion in those who uh, commit to the idea. Or a philosophical perspective that asks, well, how are they grounded or where are they grounded? But as a historian, I want to ask, where did they came from? When did people in large numbers start to accept them as the idealism or utopia they hope to advance in the world? And I, what I want to suggest is that that uh, is pretty uh, recently. And then if I have time, I'll look again at, at American international lawyers in particular and how they might fit in the story I want to suggest or a particular model of the history of human rights I want to suggest. Now, even though it's new, the history of human rights, uh, uh, I think, uh, uh, is typically thought about also in public uh, discussion uh, according to what I want to call a church history model. Now, let me uh, spell out that analogy because it's really important because it's what I want to argue against and replace. What do I mean when I say it's tempting to think about human rights as a kind of uh, church history? Well, in Christian church history, which used to be uh, written, uh, how do historians treat Christianity? It's not an accidental idea. And it's not an idea that makes its way in the world on accident. Instead, they think about Christianity as the one true belief. And if it emerges, it does so because it's true and valid. And if it succeeds, it does so for the same reason. Uh, and I think roughly, I mean, uh, that most people think about the history of human rights, including professional historians, in just this way. Now, of course, Christians knew that they were a new thing. Jesus was bringing good news, and there had been lots of people before them. But how did they think about that past? Well, history was, in a sense, on hold. Uh, you'll remember in Dante's Inferno, there's a whole part of hell for people who just had the bad luck to be born before Jesus. Now, there's also a past that church history does something different with and that's the past of the Jews. How did the, the church historian think about Jews? Well, uh, they were blindly anticipating something else. They may have thought they were trying to be Jewish and perpetuate the Jewish religion, but in fact their historical role was to bring about something later and be left behind by that something. Okay, so all the experts were pretty much wrong on Ukraine. Here's Frederick Kagan. He arrayed his forces around Ukraine. We were watching that and saying, this is going to stink this military operation that he's conducting. He's not well set up to do this. Mm -hmm. Surely his professional military officers are going to tell him that this is a bad idea. And it turns out that we were wrong that he would be persuaded by that reality, but we were right that it was a bad idea. Because mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. problems that he's now encountering, we actually did predict that he would have the problems that he's now encountering if he conducted this operation. Okay, and, okay. so it isn't obvious what precipitated this, and there isn't an obvious moral to derive from the story. One of the things that I'm very focused on is you need to start by blaming the enemy for things the enemy does. I'm happy to talk okay. about what our responsibilities are here, but 
This was all Putin's decision. He's not finding really allies at all. Look, the first thing I want to say is I think it's quite possible that he decided to launch this invasion because the intent of the mobilization, I think it is possible, the intent of the mobilization was to intimidate both the Ukrainians and the West into surrendering without having to invade. And that he he therefore, you know, allowed his military guys to set up a deployment that didn't make sense for an invasion, but was great for threatening. One of the things that happened the Biden administration deserves a lot of credit for at least one thing that it's done, actually for a few things that it's done, deserves some criticism for other things. But for the first time in history that I'm aware of, the Biden administration fought a counter hybrid warfare campaign back against the Russians. And as they became, as the Biden administration became aware of Russian preparations to conduct a coup d'etat in Kyiv, they told the Ukrainians about it and they told the world about it. As they became aware of multiple Russian preparations to conduct false flag attacks or stage Ukrainian provocations or various other things that would have given Putin informational cover and created a who really knows effect in the minds of people in the West, they blew, the Biden administration Stop blew every one of those operations. We can mm-hmm. wage war with the truth because we're not trying to lie. Putin is trying to create a false universe. Putin is trying to create a fictitious universe, and the Biden administration punctured that. I'm calling it hybrid warfare because they reacted to, first of all, Putin engaged in violence, and which makes it you know, politically motivated violence, which makes it warfare. And he, his guys were conducting deliberate information campaigns to support specific preparations for military activities. And the Biden administration engaged game for game with them on a very tactical level. So it wasn't just sort of blanket telling the truth. Mm -hmm. It was Mm -hmm. finding strategic as well, strategic and tactical blowing all of this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you can, by the way, see, I have a little artifact that suggests that this was true because Putin held one of his weirdly publicly staged, you know, national security council meetings on uh, Monday. And one of the things that happened was he absolutely humiliated the guy who is the head of his foreign intelligence agency that would have been responsible for a lot of these operations. I mean, he humiliated the guy in public in a way that we've never seen him do before. And I think he probably was genuinely angry that the guy had allowed the Biden administration to get inside all of these operations. And I am hypothesizing that Putin decided in the face of having all of this cover blown, decided that he was just going to go for it instead of waiting for this guy, Nadishkin, or somebody else to get something. Putin just said, okay, screw it. We've got the forces. I'm tired of this. We're just going to do this. And I don't care that we don't have the informational cover. So frustration and anger in response, possibly to the success of the Biden administration, sort of defeating all the informational stuff. And here are some Princeton University experts. That's important in this case. Uh, Like Kim, I got this totally wrong. Uh, And almost everybody got it totally wrong. Um, and that's because the two tools we used to figure out what autocrats are going to do didn't work. The first is the historical record. Putin had a 20-year record of being an aggressive but very risk-averse opportunist. He took maybe 600 casualties in the last decade or two of, of warfare compared to the United States, which has taken thousands. In Crimea, he took none. Um, and some people claim Ukraine is different, but the first time in in Ukraine in 2014, he carefully brought in U- Russian troops for two weeks and then 
stop the war, short of his express goals. So this is a step change in his behavior. And I think it took people by surprise and that should be worrying. Now, the other way you might want to analyze an autocrat is to get inside information, but we just don't have that inside information. Some people say about Putin, he's worried about the immediate security threat from NATO, is isolated, increasingly unhinged. Okay, let's get a little bit more from Fred Kagan. Hmm. Okay, okay. Well, that's an, that's an interesting uh, explanation for a tipping point and certainly not an expected one. You know, the Russian military is so much stronger than the, than the Ukrainian military writ large that the odds remain high that the Russian military will be able ultimately to overwhelm the Ukrainian defenses and take control of Kyiv and so forth. I, d I don't want to offer an optimistic take here because we're still early days in this war and the power imbalance is just so great. But that having been said, I would never have expected to be sitting here four days into the Russian military operation with Russian troops just messing around on the outskirts of Kyiv, just finally getting into Kharkiv and struggling all up and down. The I would never have expected that to happen, except that we, we did expect it to be a mess when they tried to do an invasion with the force packages that they had put together, especially those that are attacking Kyiv and, uh, and Kharkiv. So... A few things have gone on. One is this was a stupid way of, of, of preparing for an invasion if you were serious about an invasion. Mechanized maneuver warfare is a very complicated undertaking. When you are a commander and you've got multiple battalions, mechanized battalions moving down multiple axes of advance, sort of driving down different roads to different targets rapidly, Keeping track of all of that is very hard. Understanding what they're doing is very hard. Figuring out how to support them is very hard. They need artillery support. They need air support. They do need logistics support. You need to tell them what to do as they get the particular, or as they run into problems. It's a lot of burden on a commander to keep track of a lot of subordinates. So the solution for as long as there's been mechanized warfare is that you build forces where you never have more than two or three or maximum four direct subordinate units like that. So battalions get grouped into regiments or brigades, which are at the same echelon in an organizational structure. And there will be not more than, than four uh, maneuvering battalions or mechanized battalions within a mechanized regiment or a mechanized brigade. And then brigades and regiments get grouped into divisions. So there's not gonna be more than three or four brigades or regiments in a division. And then the divisions are grouped into larger uh, organizations. Okay, I think that's going to do it. Take care. Good night. Bye-bye.